Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in our program, our roundtable. But first, joining us to discuss the Federal Trade Commission's decision to go to court to block Lockheed Martin's proposed $4.4 billion acquisition of rocket maker Aerojet Rocketdyne is Jeff Bialos, the co-chair of the Aerospace, Defense, and Security Group at the Evershed Sutherland Law Firm, who specializes in national security matters and is a former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Industrial Affairs during the Clinton administration. He advises leading companies on merger and acquisition matters and advised GenCorp in its purchase of Aerojet in 2011 and advised the company between 2012 and 2014. Jeff, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to have you back on the program. Pleasure to be here with you as always, Vago. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy and Huntington Ingalls Industries sponsored our recent coverage of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium. Check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval matters each week, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. So obviously all eyes are on uh, the Federal Trade Commission and on the administration uh, about whether or not the decision uh, last week by the Federal Trade Commission uh, to block uh, the proposed uh, acquisition of Aerojet Rocketdyne by uh, Lockheed Martin. Uh, you know, this has been regarded as a bellwether, and obviously everybody expects Lena Khan to be taking a much tougher stance as this administration uh, prioritizes competition. Uh, from your seasoned perspective, does this ruling send a broader signal uh, about antitrust regulators' attitude towards defense consolidation more broadly? Did the Federal Trade Commission depart from, you know, whatever traditional competition metrics they were using in this deal? So let me start, um, excuse me, with the second point. Um, Look, I think the analysis of whether there is an antitrust problem here that warrants a remedy, uh, I think, is very consistent with traditional anti-press principles and what the FTC and justice have done in uh, applying those principles in the propulsion area over a number of deals from uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne to the uh, uh, orbital ATK to, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Northrop orbital deal. And so I think it's very consistent. They looked for whether the vertical integration was would allow the combined entity uh, to disadvantage Lockheed's competitors and foreclose them from the market to the detriment of, uh, of, of customers. So would Raytheon and Boeing and the other competitors of Lockheed be able to avail themselves of solid rocket motors, uh, other kinds of things, uh, uh, other propulsion technologies, uh, uh, you know, after the transaction, very consistent logic. And I think when you read the, the, the decision, frankly, um, it's, it's, it seems to me sound and not a departure from that standpoint. What is a departure and what is different is, and the headline here is that the FTC has declined to use a, uh, a behavioral remedy in the form of a consent decree uh, to address the competitive problem it found to exist. That's different. 
as you know, in the Northrop Orbital deal, a consent decree was put in place that required firewalls and required that Northrop agree not to uh, uh, disadvantage, uh, to afford access to technology to other parties and not discriminate. So in that case, the issue was whether Lockheed, Northrop uh, you know, would allow its competitors on the, uh, the ground base strategic deterrent program, the minimum replacement, to get access to the solid rocket motor capabilities, which really was better than any other capabilities that ATK had. And, you know, what happened in that case, frankly, is that Boeing ultimately withdrew from the program. And so, in effect, the very reason for the consent decree, uh, it didn't work. And the FTC, there's some indication that Boeing complained to the FTC and they investigated. We don't know what the outcome of that was. Um, But as we sit here today, the FTC decided um, not to uh, put in place a behavioral remedy today. And, and I should point out, right, you, you also, I think, advised on uh, the uh, orbital uh, transaction. But um, what was the specific complaint that the FTC had in this case, right? I mean, they wouldn't allow a behavioral remedy. What was their fundamental beef with the transaction? Their fundamental beef uh, with the transaction uh, was that uh, Aerojet has leading solid rocket motors used in missiles, uh, the DACs, which are divert now to control, uh, 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 you know, propulsion systems and air breathing hypersonic propulsion. And the concern was that after the deal, Lockheed could deny the use of these specialized propulsion solutions to its competitors, or even if they didn't deny it, to give them the second best solution, give them the B team on their program and keep the A team for itself. And um, and uh, right, obviously, Lockheed Martin's position on this is I'm a merchant supplier. I will be as open supplying this to Boeing or to Raytheon or any other company uh, that's, that's in the marketplace. Uh, clearly not enough to satisfy uh, the FTC. And there, there was a sense that this transaction would be uh, would be blocked. What does Lockheed Martin do at this point? Well, I think, you know, Lockheed, uh, first of all, at the end of the day, it's, it's a business decision what to do here. And I, I am not close. I have no idea what. Uh, what what they're going to do. Um, But what I would say here is that, you know, uh, if Lockheed takes this to court and proceeds, um, the judge will decide whether to issue a preliminary injunction. And in making that ruling, he will look at not only whether there's a probability that uh, there's a high probability of finding that the the, the merger violates the, you know, the antitrust laws, but he, he gets to decide the remedy. And so what Lockheed could do is, you know, they could decide not to contest on the merits of whether there's any trust claim, but they can go to the court and say, um, we, we see it on that, but we think a behavioral remedy would solve this. And, you know, one of the key variables there is what would the Defense Department say if called as a witness? If the Defense Department would come in and say, we agree, we think, a, you know, a, a consent decree would solve the comparative harm. That would be helpful to them. Now, the FTC, you know, might come back and compete against that and say, well, but we know from history with Northrop Orbital uh, here that consent decrees might not be effective. We think they're generally not very effective in this kind of situation. And we also note that Lockheed, in the fu- they found the FTC that 
uh, Lockheed had tried on numerous occasions to get Aerojet not to offer its solutions to its competitors, and that might give them cause to think a consent decree wouldn't help address that behavior. And so if I'm Lockheed, I'm thinking that analysis through. I'm looking at who the judge is, and I'm deciding. But I think on the merits, you know, they have some more than uh, tiny chance of prevailing that not that there's not a problem that this remedy might work in this context, but they have to weigh that. They have to weigh that against broader prudential concerns, of, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. government. And do they want right. to, you know, take this on? Um, let me uh, ask uh, two two questions as we uh, bring this to a close. The first question is, right, from your reading of what the FTC issued suggests that the Pentagon was comfortable with the transaction going through with a remedy, right? What does this tell us about where the Defense Department is uh, and Jesse Salazar and his office uh, vis -a -vis in, the, in the Pentagon vis-a-vis -vis where the FTC uh, and potentially justice is? Well, you know, uh, the DOD uh, issued a statement the other day indicating that they transmitted a, their view on this to the um, FTC. But they said in the interest of process, we're going to keep that, you know, advice uh, confidential. Um, so nobody knows for sure what they said. But one would think, you know, one plausible thing they said is that while we have concerns over this, uh, we we think a remedy is sufficient. Now would be consistent with uh, past history. I also think if you read the administrative uh, com complaint of the FTC, the way it's worded, sort of, you can infer this from that, that they supported the FTC, that there is a problem. Um, the difference is they chose the FTC, assuming that's correct, and I don't know that's correct, assuming that's correct, that, just, that, that the DOD said, we see a problem, but we think a consent decree and behavioral remedy could address it. You know, um, the, 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 a secondary headline here would be that the FTC did not defer to the DOD's view on national security on this. And, you know, you have two agencies with different important values, the FTC enforcing the antitrust laws and just the Defense Department on national security. And, you know, most of the time there's deference to DOD and the ultimate conclusion, but not always. And this is one of those cases. Uh, I, I was going to say, thanks for pointing that out, right? Because every once in a while, we do see uh, antitrust regulators deferring on national security grounds to the Pentagon. Let me ask you one last question. How, how does this, there is an anticipation that we are looking at a wave uh, of uh, merger and acquisition activity that's going to be coming at us, right? I mean, there are a number of large transactions that have gone through even over the course uh, of the pandemic, whether it was Raytheon Technologies or L3 Harris, I should point out, uh, both Raytheon and L3 have uh, sponsored us uh, or, spo or continue to sponsor us. Um, what does this mean for transactions going forward, right? I mean, do you see the landscape changing in any significant fashion um, for the deals that folks are considering right now? Is anybody hitting a pause button, do you think? Look, um, on this, I, I, there are two sides to this. On the one hand, when I read the FTC's press release, um, it seems that they wanted to send some type of a message that, you know, uh, they're going to take a more robust view of, uh, of looking at mergers in the defense market. I mean, the subheading is, 
quote, agency seeks to prevent world's largest defense contractor from eliminating last independent U.S. missile propulsion provider and further consolidating markets critical to national security and defense, end quote. Second, the statement says, quote, this is the agency's first litigated defense merger challenge in decades, okay? So that and other language in the release leads to the view that they're trying to send a signal. Now, that said, you know, I would temper that to some degree, and I, I would not read too much into it. One, this case is a vertical case. It is not an analysis of horizontal mergers, which is the usual merger, which is, you know, are we going from four to three or three to two in a sector of the market like uh, UAVs? And what do we think about that? So I think you can't, you know, necessarily say this says much about the view in horizontal mergers. Second of all, there's been a longstanding policy across administrations that DOD in particular has in defense markets, which is, you know, mergers among primes are disfavored and other mergers are going to be reviewed case by case. I have no reason to think that's going to change. Will the antitrust agencies stop more horizontal mergers in defense and aerospace at the margin? That remains to be seen, Bago. Jeff, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Pleasure and happy to come. And a word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Another volatile week as the United States posted the strongest economic growth since the 1980s at 5.7%. Too much cash chasing too few goods as product and manpower costs are rising thereby contributing to inflation, driving the Fed in turn to move to raise borrowing rates more quickly than planned. Supply chain woes will get worse as COVID lockdowns impact the Chinese economy. Leading aerospace and defense companies posted fourth 2021 quarter earnings, including Boeing, that posted the second consecutive year of losses and faces criticism, including from one of our August team for investing $450 million in air taxi company WISC, rather than in their core commercial jetliner business that's losing ground to Airbus. Lockheed Martin reported earnings just before the FTC rejected the company's proposed Aerojet Rocketdyne merger, as we heard earlier in the program. Meanwhile, the Omicron wave appears to have peaked in Europe and the United States, although low vaccination rates make the virus deadly elsewhere in the world and fertile ground where we can continue to mutate. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent research firm, Agency Partners in London, and Richard Amalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Guys, welcome back to the program. Hey, great to be here, Vago. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago. Always a pleasure. Good to be here, Vago. Thanks. Uh, indeed, uh, terrific having you all on, especially as we're having, uh, as usual, as has been the case, uh, a geographically distributed footprint. Ron, another uh, volatile week uh, on Wall Street, inflation worries, uh, but top CEOs are making the case that the rate of inflation has, has slowed uh, and they uh, see it as a transitory issue, even though it's going to play out for, for a while. And, and again, we have China as a, as a continuing problem. Uh, we also uh, had major companies uh, report. We're going to have a more in-depth conversation of Boeing as well as earnings uh, as well. But walk, walk us through what the big uh, market needle movers were uh, over the past week. And Sash, want to get your sense in a moment about where European markets were. Quick rundown of, uh, you know, kind of everything we tend to look at. The 10-year yield was hovering around 1.8%, um, which is the higher end of the range, which it's been with, you know, upward pressure. Uh, Bank of America thinks we'll be at 2% pretty soon. 
the debate was really does the Fed do you know three rate rises, four rate rises? Is their first raise you know twenty five basis points, fifty basis points? So a lot of debate about that. I'm always kind of astonished when the market acts surprised the Fed's going to raise rates when everybody's been talking about the Fed raising rates. So um, I don't necessarily believe it's a surprise, but whatever. Um, it kind of, it kind of it is what it is. A lot of volatility in the market this week, and there were a lot of big days, ups and downs. And uh, you know, the market would open up, it would close down, it would, and it just everybody kind of saw what happened. Tons of volatility across the aerospace and defense group among companies that reported. Um, and we can talk about that in, in more detail in a little bit if you want. Uh, and so I, I think that was really the, you know, the biggest news. I mean, everybody was just sort of buried in earnings. Tons of volatility. Uh, lots of uncertainty around, I guess, the the rate at which the Fed's going to move. Um, consumer prices came in December; they were up seven percent, um, which uh, was a bit below what you know economists were surveyed. They said about seven point three percent, so it was a little bit below economist surveys. But seven seven percent year on year consumer price index rise um, is a uh, is a big number, right? So the market was digesting that as well. Sash, uh, give us your sense on what was driving European markets over the past week and what you think were the most uh, interesting uh, elements uh, that, that jumped out at you. European markets overall were driven by Ukraine. Uh, they were driven by fears of a horrendous gas war and a continued horrendous pr- gas price squeeze because of uh, Ukraine and because of the, I think, very credible threat that Russia will just withhold supplies of gas. Uh, uh, almost whether or not uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, comes online or not. Um, and then, I, you know, European markets really moved um, in response to, but in a rather lagged way, to the US market. So there was remarkably little corporate news flow. European companies generally report about two weeks uh, in arrears to the, to the US. So actually, European reporting season starts at the very end of next week with SAR, but really only picks up 10 days after that. It's a sort of, it's, a, it's very much a February um, show so you know, in terms of news flow, there, there was actually only one interesting piece of, of news flow during the week, which concerned Leonardo, uh, and it started with uh, a news report that Leonardo, or at least that the uh, sale of Eurofighter Typhoon aircraft to Kuwait is being investigated in Kuwait because of a um, possible, uh, uh, you know, bribes, corruption, or so forth. And Leonardo shares came off pretty, pretty rapidly on the back of that, although. The company put out a statement uh, that evening, um, you know, saying that deliveries of the aircraft was going ahead and everything was hunky dory, and um, the, the shares rebounded. Then two days later, uh, Leonardo pre-announced positively, um, you know, and said that orders, uh, turnover, you know, um, uh, profits were all towards the top end of the guidance range. Probably the single most tangible number they gave was that free cash flow in the year uh, was double what they'd forecast. Um, you've got to put that into perspective. They had guided to free cash flow of 100 million, which is very, very low for a company turn with turnover in the teens of billions. Uh, and they said, actually, it's been 200 million. Well, you know, our, our feeling is, what do we do? And this is still a very low he- uh, cash flow yielding company. But the market took that well, um, uh, because trying to get Leonardo to turn around from being cash consuming, and that is very much in there underperforming civil aerostructures business uh, to start to generate you know, more stable cash flow as a consequence of uh, having you know, good, more stable long-term positions in defense. That's really what the market wants to see. And you know, they hope that the uh, better, you know, better than forecast cash flow for 2021 is a harbinger of that. We'll see. 
Richard, what were the most needle-moving uh, stories uh, of the week? We're going to get uh, to the whisk uh, uh, discussion in a little bit here, but what were uh, some interesting uh, uh, things that you picked out in terms of market performance that uh, you think it's is worthy of comment? You know, I think one of the most interesting aspects uh, was Boeing's earnings of what it meant from the military market standpoint, because things were a lot lighter than I would have thought, particularly with Super Hornet deliveries. Uh, helicopters were kind of in line. F-15, a little light, but not as bad as Super Hornet. And I can't help but wonder whether they're having supply chain issues there, just as Lockheed Martin is with the F-35, obviously a smaller scale. But that's one thing that hit me uh, looking out at the week. Um, uh, let's let's get into uh, earnings then, and 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 talk a little bit about that because uh, I think everybody had a tendency of doing well. You know, sort of unsurprisingly, we saw you know dividend announcements, so that's what we know companies are doing with their cash. They're they're pressing ahead with uh, buybacks and and spinning off dividends as un uh, uncreative as that uh, might be. Uh, and obviously, there are uh, folks who are concerned. Uh, about uh, the M&A uh, environment uh, slowing down, and I want to get your guys' sense on that. Ron, quickly walk us through uh, earnings and what you thought the high points were, right? I mean, some of the biggest names um, reported. Uh, we had Khaki, uh, CACI International report. We had Heiko report, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, Textron, Teledyne, uh, Boeing, uh, obviously the biggest name in the group, the Raytheon uh, Technologies uh, as well. Walk us through the group. Uh, and how they performed. And then maybe we can take a, a couple of minutes after you go through everybody else to talk about Boeing, which is kind of in a separate category in terms of some of the challenges it faces. Yeah, so so quickly, um, you know, the S&P for the week was, as a broad market indicator, right, was down about a percent. Um, you know, on the week, when you go through some of the, some of the bigs, Boeing was down 11%, Northrop was down 4%, Booz Allen was down 12%, then Khaki was around 8 to 9%. Uh, Raytheon was up 2, big winner. General Dynamics was up 2, big winner. Textron was down 8, and Lockheed Martin was up 4%. Um, so I would say there was a couple of themes you could pick out of this. It was not Defense 1, Commercial didn't. Commercial 1 defense didn't, the, you know, those kind of thematics. It was very company specific. And it was really around, you know, like, as you would expect, expectations on names where expectations were very high and things came in a little bit light, names got punished, punished. like Textron. Textron had a fine quarter, but expectations were really high, so the stock got hit. Um, Lockheed Martin uh, expectations were pretty low, um, and they had a decent quarter, better than expectations, the stock went up. Um, most of the services companies across the board uh, we're getting, you know, getting hit by, by uh, COVID. And, and in general, the service companies get hit a little bit harder because they're just people businesses, right? So if the people don't work, um, it's just really difficult for them. Um, you know, it's, it's hard for them to do automation. They're not making anything or whatever. But so the service companies got hit. Um, Booz Allen, you know, they got hit particularly hard uh, because they last year took down their their guidance for organic growth. They just had an investor session a couple months ago, and then they just took down their organic growth again. So the market's never kind of forgiving to companies that sort of swing twice and miss. Uh, they got they got hit hard on that. Um, Boeing, we'll talk about a, a little bit more detail, I guess, in a sec. But I mean, I think that was the theme, even on business jets, right? Um, Gulfstream had a, a very strong quarter in business jets. Um, as did Textron, 
but the stocks went in different directions because expectations were different directions. And I think probably one of the standout stories to me in the quarter on the positive side was really how strong um, Golfstream is doing in the current environment. You know, in our own our own financial model, you can step out to maybe 2026, and it looks like Golfstream could be delivering close to 200 airplanes. That's a lot of big, you know, $70 million airplanes. Um, so it's the Golfstream business is really kind of hitting the ball out of the park at the moment. But that's not to say Textron isn't doing fine. That's not Textron Aviation is doing great. Um, so I think that's the summary of, of the earnings for the week. Do you, do you mind if uh, I just uh, kick in there? Uh, yeah, go for, ahead. Sure. You know, one thing I'd add to that was very interesting about Textron contrasted with uh, with Gulfstream, because when people talk about the bull market business aircraft demand these days in terms of high rates of utilization and low rates of aircraft availability and uh, high levels of uh, you know used aircraft sales and transactions, it's really interesting. All the action or a lot of the action is the sort of mid small mid cabin which is where textron plays and yet their guidance for next year was pretty light in other words either they're not expecting this to translate into a bunch more sales or they've chosen i I think it might be a rational decision to firm up pricing rather than increase output so at the top end yeah uh, ron says they can't build large cabin business yet fast enough even though you're not seeing the same crazy high demand metrics you see in the small cabin stuff but uh with small and mid cabin um you know guidance is relatively needed and, and, um, and one thing i just mean just to richard's comment um and, and maybe there's a little bit of different positioning here um you know general dynamics gave a, a longer term outlook i think what you know, Textron is saying um, is actually pretty, you know, uh, prudent. One, they are constrained by their supply chain. They can only ramp up so fast. They do want to get pricing. And maybe one of the things they're not saying is they have a very strong competitor who I suspect has taken some share, and that's an Embraer. Embraer, don't forget, has, you know, several different aircraft in the market right now. We'll see. They report in the coming weeks on how well they did. But I suspect they will have done quite well in the business jet market. Um, let's uh, go uh, to Boeing. Uh, obviously, that was one of the bigger stories uh, of the week, another tough year that included the aftermath of 737, uh, but also 70, uh, 787 production problems that have cost another $3.5 billion uh, this year uh, on top of $2 billion um, already logged. There are also rising charges on KC-46 and talk about um, contractual remedies, 777X uh, costs. Um, I mean, walk us through the high and the lows of that. And and on top of that, they dedicated half a billion dollars of their investment capital uh, on an air taxi company, WISC. Now, senior executives are explaining how important autonomous technology is for the company's future. Richard, uh, you criticized that decision uh, in a a Forbes uh, piece, and I want to get that uh, get to that and have you m- make that case uh, in a moment. But Ron, sort of walk us through what we're seeing at Boeing. Uh, what was surprising to you? What wasn't right? I mean, we've been following this company really closely. There are defense CEO friends uh, and uh, audience members here who, uh, you know, sometimes question why we spend so much time talking about commercial aviation, uh, in part because that is kind of the the biggest story with stuff that are going wrong for an iconic American company. Walk us Walk us through where we are, because there are folks who are portraying this as, Boeing turns corner to sunnier uplands uh, sashes here. So I thought I'd use a Boris Johnsonism. Um, yeah, so a, a couple things, right? Um, it's a big, complicated company. So it was sort of a big, complicated quarter. Um, maybe let's talk about 
um, some of the positives first, and we can kind of roll into some of the, the challenges they had. They generated cash. That was the first time they generated cash in quite some time. Um, that was a positive. Um, they're delivering 737s um, at a little bit of a higher rate. That's a positive. Um, if you slip, kind of flip into the negatives, they took charges in every business unit, so sort of a trifecta in charges. Um, so that that wasn't you know, seen as, as very good. Uh, they took more charges on the tanker, so that you know the, the amount of charges on the tanker at this point, I kind of lost count. Six billion, something like that. It's kind of mind numbing. Um, and they took a three and a half billion dollar charge because of the delays on the seven eight seven program. And then on top of it, they took another billion dollar charge, what they call ad, abnormal uh, manufacturing costs on top of a billion dollar charge that they already took. So in total, so far, they've charged off uh, five and a half billion dollars of future profitability and future cash flow um, on, on the 787 program. All right, so they're, they're seeing tons of challenges. They couldn't say to the street, and I think this is what uh, upset investors and kind of ultimately led to the uh, challenge with the stock, is, is when they can get 787s delivered again. Um, you know, kind of our industry sources tell us there's still about 345 or so 737s parked uh, in inventory. You add on top of that another 120 or so uh, 787s. Um, they've communicated to the suppliers they're going to keep 787 production rates very low through the end of 2023. So that means you know the production rates on 787s will be about two per month through the end of uh, 2023. But if you look at the inventory of airplanes they have, it's almost like they've got, you know, United Airlines or Lufthansa sitting in their inventory. They've got uh, they've got so many airplanes. So and and they also communicated that uh, even though they generated cash in the last quarter, first quarter of the year, they're going to burn through a bunch of cash. The street was expecting about five billion dollars of cash generated from Boeing this year. Looks like it'll probably be closer to maybe uh, maybe two billion, one and a half billion. So that wasn't seen as a you know, so so on balance kind of it. Balance. It wasn't. It wasn't great. I think it's being, you know, in certain circles, being seen as oh, they're turning the corner because they did take this big charge. You know, like what what else can happen? And the, cyclically, the market's getting better. Seven threes are kind of going out the door. The Chinese will start taking them at some point here, and at some point here, they're going to start delivering seven eight seven. So I think that's you know the spin on it being you know the outlook getting better, which to some degree is probably right. Uh, and then the final point, I'll hand this back to you to give to Richard. And this was my question on the earnings call. How can you be you know, spending you know, you know, $450 million on some product that's not necessarily yours per se, um, not in your core market, where in your core market, your competitor really is killing you right now, right? Isn't that shouldn't your focus be someplace else? I've got some thoughts on that, but I don't want to take the wind away from Richard. So maybe I can you know, circle back after Richard on WISC. Um, uh, I I indeed, and we're going to go to Sash also and bring him into this conversation as well. Because, but uh, uh, Richard, uh, start us off. Uh, great piece uh, in Forbes uh, in in terms of your sort of bread and butter blocking and tackling, and how you feel Chicago should be prioritizing. Um, g give us give us your argument in full. Yeah, I mean, I think there's. Uh, it was kind of a, just a head scratcher because. Um, if times were good and they were doing just fine in market share and they had a full portfolio of products that were competing great against Airbus, that would be one thing to say, oh, hey, maybe there's a future in autonomous, individualized vertical flight. You know, talk about a crapshoot. I think we all know that at, at best, 
advanced air mobility is is an aspirational goal decades hence, and at worst is just a, a complete, you know, very white jet redux bubble. Um, the idea that they're losing market share to the, you know, right. I mean, one thing about Airbus's numbers this this uh, just a couple of weeks ago was that they they broke the four thousand mark in A three twenty one Neo sales. They literally cannot build those fast enough. It's the only segment of the jetliner business that's truly healthy and growing that mid-market segment. And Boeing just isn't competing there. And on top of that, Boeing is cutting its own R&D by 21%, I believe, last year on top of the previous year's 30%. Um, That's not necessarily directly linked to headcount, but headcount reductions are involved. In other words, they're frittering away their own competitive advantage as a jetliner designer and manufacturer when they reduce R&D to that extent. And you have to wonder at what point they get to the point of no return. It's been 18 years since they've launched an all new jet and they're frittering away those engineers. Um, And here they are going and taking that money and investing in, again, something that's just a a complete crapshoot. We have no idea. And the idea that they would need it for autonomous technology, you know, why wouldn't they do that in-house if it's such an absolutely vital uh, core technology? And how come they don't have it with previous acquisitions like In-Situ or or Aurora Flight Sciences or whatever else? So the whole thing was a head-scratcher and a serious diversion of resources to me. Um, and and you made the point in the piece, right? You would have been more reassured if this had gone to the middle market airplane, for example, or a research study or, or or something else. Sash, let me bring you in and have you comment on uh, everything you heard, whether on Boeing or or Whisk or or anything else, um, because there is there's a lot here to um, there's a lot here to think through. Yeah, back agree. to yeah. back to back to Ron's point, right? We've thought we've hit bottom before, and we keep finding new bottoms, right? On every single turn of this, it's like, okay, well, we've plumbed the bottom of KC-46. We've plumbed, you know, we've turned a corner on something. This is a limited problem. And we find that some of these things are actually not as limited as we might've hoped, right? So that's, that's kind of the historian uh, in in me, in me speaking. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, first of all, you know, I would, a, a message to our defense listeners who are, who think they're not getting a fair fair bite of, of our discussion. The reason why we're discussing uh, so much about Boeing and have done for three years, and at this rate may do for another three years, is that what we're discussing is the slow but horribly near inevitable death of a systemically important American industry and institution because it is being managed that way. And I, you know, I've never seen a subject that was more important over the long term than... Uh, Boeing's uh, wrong directions and the degree to, you know, the implications that has for America. Um, if, you know, if, if our listeners disagree, uh, you know, clearly um, they're, they're entitled to do so. But this is the most important subject. I've, I, I've never seen a company of this importance um, so cons- consistently go wrong and get it wrong. Um, a couple of points then, um, uh, you know, in reverse order, whisk. Uh, I completely agree with, with Richard and Ron. Um, I would make one point about autonomous transport of any sort, um, which is, you know, very much supports my view of why I think this is a catastrophic waste of money, which is that the, the entire basis on which autonomous transport may or may not have happened in, in you know, any given 
country is going to be a function of what lawmakers regard as being an appropriate balance of risks. And there was a very, very interesting uh, paper out by the UK Law Commission, which is an, an advisory body that uh, that looks at big issues you know, of law, as the case may say, which are talking about autonomous cars. And what it says is, if autonomous cars are going to happen in the UK, the balance of responsibility when those cars are being driven autonomously has got to change from the person that we would historically have called the driver, but will then be the individual sitting in front, to the manufacturer. Because any mistake that that car makes, you know, crashing into something or somebody, actually is a function of the autonomous system, not a function of the person sitting in front. Uh, that transfer of risk pretty much kills this industry. It will kill autonomous flight. And autonomous flight just won't happen if the risk is on the, the OEM and not on the, uh, you know, the person we would historically have called the pilot in charge. So good luck with that. I would not be spending four or 500 million bucks on autonomous uh, anything and saying, well, this is our best way to gain, gain uh, some technology. The other point that I'd make on the, the Boeing numbers, um, Richard talked about the uh, A321neo. Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic aircraft. Um, but actually, A321neo is only part of Airbus's backlog, albeit the, you know, the dominant part now, and it's going to be the dominant part of their margins going forward. Um, but if you look at Boeing's year-end backlog, just over 4,200 aircraft, Airbus's year-end backlog, 7,100 aircraft, even if you adjust Airbus's backlog for what are still a collection of stinkers in terms of old, stale, um, uh, laughable orders that they should have weeded out. Although I think Airbus is doing a very good job of weeding them out. They've taken 750 cancellations in the last three years, most of them voluntary to, to get rid of stuff that um, they realized did not um, pass the sniff test anymore. Even if you weed those out, um, Airbus's backlog, 6,300. Boeing's backlog, uh, 4,200. Airbus's backlog is exactly 50% bigger than Boeing's. They can therefore produce with, with the same backlog cover at a 50% greater rate. That's market dominance. That's not a duopoly anymore. Boy, that's a really uncomfortable position. Um, and I can't, you know, again, that makes frittering away serious amounts of money on something that is not a new civil aircraft uh, look like a uh, an astonishing um, misunderstanding of the severity of the situation. Ron, uh, let's uh, round the horn with you uh, on this and and your take and analysis that you uh, provided your clients over the past week. So I think when you when you when you think about the quote unquote investment risk, I mean whisk 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 risk, they rhyme. Um, the investment in 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 whisk. Boeing owns, I think it's 59%, something like that, of, of WISC. So if you, and WISC has something like 200 to 250 employees. So if you just look at the operating costs of the company, this basically just funds the company for another two years or something like that. And they own part of it. So in a way, it was a way to, I think, to characterize um, you know, the operating of the company and their ownership in this thing and to frame it as, as an investment, right? So it's, I mean, there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors here going on. And, and it still begs the question, should you own something and been putting this much money in something where if anything comes of it, it's probably not until very late this decade, if not early sometime or mid next decade. And to disaster's point, I hadn't thought about it that way. But you know, if all the risk falls on the OE, that just seems like something has to be done there. It's really untenable. 
Um, so, so anyway, that's, that's where I fall out. I mean, it, you know, I think Richard's dead on, right. You know, it's, it's, you, you, you can't be throwing half a billion dollars. Right? So it makes it sound bigger than 500 million. Um, you can't be spending half a billion dollars on something that is so uncore at a time where in your core market, at least one piece of it, you're getting eviscerated by your competition. Um, let me uh, ask, uh, just uh, change the subject to uh, Lockheed Aerojet Rocketdyne. Uh, we heard from Jeff Bialos at the top of the show that this was sort of a classical antitrust uh, assessment and analysis, uh, a concern that this, these guys are really the most important merchant supplier in the space for uh, you know all manner of uh, rocket motors at, at a time when space is surging. Um, you know, how, how did the street receive that? Uh, decision because that's also one of the reasons that propelled Lockheed up and Aerojet down. Yeah, but street, more, more broadly, right? I mean, is the street seeing this as a needle mover because those the antitrust experts I spoke to are like, eh, not really. I mean, you can make a very classical case on this on why you wouldn't want Lockheed to own it. Yeah, I mean, I think the street never really liked the deal in the first place, right? So having the deal not go through in the end, um, I think the street the street liked it. Um, you know, we were telling the camp, we weren't too crazy about the deal for Lockheed anyway. So, but we weren't alone in that. So I think that's why. why, why the, and, the and why, and, and why wasn't the street crazy about the deal? Well, the way they, they poised it, it was sort of, you know, they saved costs for the government and it just strategically, it just didn't make a ton of sense. And, and Lockheed uh, with their, their new C-suite kind of came out and said, Hey, we're going to do some, deals that were you know potentially game changing and talking about different technologies and this and that and then then this one came up and to be quite candid or not candid just frank about it aerojet rocketdyne had been on the block for a long time right and a lot of companies had you know passed over it so in the end it was unclear exactly what this brought to lockheed um and you know our interpretation was lockheed wanted to do it because they were unhappy with the piece of GBSD that they were allocated from Northrop. I mean, everybody's on the GBS team except Boeing, um, but Lockheed's piece of GBSD, I think it's skinnier than they had hoped. And this was a way for them to get more action in that market. Um, so, you know, from the, from the beginning, the street wasn't crazy about it. Um, and, 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 and I think sadly, Roger, I don't know what you think about this because you tend to be closer to this stuff than I am. But it seems like they tried to do the deal under the wrong administration, that the previous administration was a little more open to this sort of stuff. And, uh, maybe under this administration, there was just more scrutiny and maybe more work done on it. And that's how it ended up. Sash, uh, one of the other interesting, we're running uh, short on time. We've had a little bit of a longer show with Jeff at the, at the top of it. Um, one of the other interesting stories that I thought uh, is worth discussing is uh, India's decision to sell uh, three Brahmos batteries, uh, Brahmos anti-ship uh, batteries uh, to the Philippines uh, at a time when tensions between Manila and Beijing uh, are rising. What do deals like this tell you? Uh, because the Indians are very, very guarded. This is a cooperative program uh, with India and Moscow, right? The Brahma and uh, Moscow rivers uh, is what the weapon is named after. It's supersonic. It's very, very good. It's devastating, even if it doesn't <laughs> the warhead doesn't go off, uh, given uh, the, the impact rates. Uh, and the Philippines intend to array this batteries, the, these three batteries, uh, two launchers per battery uh, with the Philippine Marines uh, up and down 
the Philippine coast. What is what does this transaction mean? I mean, first, you know, Brahmos, you're absolutely right. It's a monster of a missile. If you've ever seen it underneath a Sukhoi 27, which is a huge fighter aircraft by in anybody's language, you know, it makes the Sukhoi look small. The ground launch variant needs a very large truck to carry a couple of missiles. Um, I, I'm, I, I sometimes question why it needs a warhead. The kinetic energy of this thing hitting a ship is going to be absolutely devastating. You know, it, this is multiple uh, times the size of uh, you know, an X set or a harpoon or something. Um, so what's significant about this? Um, it's very significant that India is prepared to export it. Um, and I think it's really interesting that the Philippines have asked for it. It suggests they haven't been offered anything at an acceptable price by anybody else. US, France uh, would be the two obvious uh, suppliers. And um, that's a real failure, actually, of Western foreign policy. We should have been offering the Philippines uh, a top-notch anti-ship missile, because what this is, is really high-quality anti-access uh, area denial uh, stuff for um, against Chinese surface ships. And I think this will make the Chinese feel extremely uncomfortable uh, towards the bottom end of the, um, the South China Sea, because they won't know where these launchers are and they won't know the effect they can have. It, so it, I think this is really smart by the Philippines. I think it is a failure of uh, policy. I think it's also... In it, this is just there's a broader issue here, which is that the stronghold of Western and, and that's a misuse of what I mean is really U.S. European uh, defense technology is weakening. There is other technology available which may provide a you know a similar capability at a dissimilar price. Um, the, one of the things I'm watching uh, at the moment in terms of uh, effective import penetration is the Korean land systems industry. Who, you know, Korea is now competing in Norway for a main battle tank requirement against Leopard. Ten years ago, I would say they don't have a prayer. Now, I, you know, I think that's the most important uh, competition for Germany and for the European armored vehicle industry. Korea is competing. Oh, Hanwha, and in, Hanwha, and yeah, and Hanwha in the United true. States doing a ter- terrific job as well, right? Yeah, and and in Australia, and the Australian contract is way ahead of the uh, the US uh, contract with, with uh, K twenty one Redback um, for Land four hundred. Uh, for, uh, phase three, and Hanwar is selling um, self-propelled uh, guns, K9 Thunder, uh, like hotcakes. You know, it's a clearly really good. So, you know, we, you know, the West need to worry about the fact that we're no longer the only people out there who can sell top-notch defense equipment. And now that there are, you know, the Indians are prepared to export Brahmos, um, you know, if I'm a European or a US missileer, I really worry about that because um, I'm going to have a shot on my pencil. Richard, we can't end uh, a program and not end up discussing uh, COVID in some fashion. At least 883,000, uh, 884,000 Americans have died uh, in, in the pandemic uh, so far. Um, it is going down in terms of uh, overall new case numbers, but unfortunately, uh, there are a significant number of people who are dying every day uh, still uh, from this. Any uh, update as we, you know, on what the travel scene looks like as we come out of COVID? Or, or rather, I should say, as we we get past the Omicron crest, let me put it that way. Yeah, you know, we had the first real Omicron month reported in traffic from IATA uh, just a couple of days ago. And December was, uh, you know, down 46% relative to uh, 2019 numbers which is kind of where we thought we would be. In other words, the, you know, the first big Omicron month maybe perhaps dented things a little, but not a great deal. We're still on the trajectory of a comeback. 
And I, I think we're just seeing the dynamic that we'd seen for some time, which is that people who are vaccinated, who are, you know, frankly, disproportionately going to be traveling relative to people who are not vaccinated, have digested the risks and they're traveling more. The numbers are up, especially U.S. domestic. And, um, you know, hopefully that'll continue as vaccinations continue to make progress. But, you know, to, to be blunt, they're simply going to have to find another Greek letter. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, you know, mine, I'm not, I'm not joking about that. There almost certainly will be another variant. It'll probably be worse than Omicron. I sure hope not, but it might. Um, but it, it's not Omicron. It, it didn't do any serious damage to the profile of the recovery. Uh, and right, I mean, all uh, everybody is looking and, and hoping uh, that whatever the next variant is, we, you know, at least vaccinations and, and you know, that it will transition from pandemic to endemic status. Ron, the last question goes to you. Mike Petters, the president and CEO of Huntington Ingalls Industries, is stepping down, uh, being replaced by the company's chief financial officer, Chris Kastner, uh, effective March 1st. Uh, Mike will become executive vice chairman. Uh, chairman of the company, of course, is Kirk Donald, uh, former uh, Naval Reactors uh, chief. Um, Mike is highly respected, uh, a very thoughtful uh, chief executive, um, navigated the company's uh, independence from Northrop Grumman and positioned it well for the future. Uh, but he's also sealed uh, acquisition deals that have not been particularly popular uh, with Wall Street. Uh, you've known Mike for some time and you've uh, covered him. I can, I can say um, I've uh, always uh, enjoyed talking to Mike, and I think he is uh, really an extraordinary uh, intellect um, and individual. Uh, what do you think his legacy is going to be? Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll all miss Mike, right? I mean, I agree with you. I mean, I've had some you know great conversations with Mike over the years, and um, you know for sure he's a you know kind of a top notch shipbuilding executive. I'd say the one place he ran into some friction with the street, um, and, and it's unfair to point him, but the company under his leadership ran into some friction with the street with some of their M and A, right? They got into you know oil field services, offshore oil field services, kind of at the wrong time. Um, their latest deal with uh, Alion is a little bit, you know, controversial with the street. So, um, from an M and A perspective, I think they're, you know, the, the, there's, you know, the street hasn't been crazy about that. But I don't think anybody would argue that you know, as a, you know, top-notch shipbuilder and running running the company over the years, he did he did a great job. And and if everybody remembers, if you look at you know Huntington Ingalls when it was part of Northrop Grumman and then was set free from Northrop Grumman, you know, its financials and everything about the company when it was you know, making its own decisions and setting its own course. So, you know, Mike for sure will be missed in that role. So, um, uh, but, you know, he's, he has a, you know, a good bench and, you know, we're um, optimistic about the future of the company. Uh, well, we wish Mike uh, Fairwind's following season the new assignment uh, and uh, look forward to talking to him again uh, before he hangs up his hat and then also getting Chris on the program as well. It would be great to hear from him. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Another great conversation. Hope you all have a, uh, a great what's left of the weekend, a great week, and have you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Yeah, great to be here, Vago, as always. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. Really appreciate you doing this, Vago. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.